Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium podcast and a very special episode. It's very special because, well, eh, for a lot of reasons, but partly because this is the start of a new series of podcasts. Uh, this is about uh, what, what's our author, Drew? Matthew Stover. Matthew Stover's Acts of Cain series. Um, so as, as I already let the cat out of the bag, I'm joined by Drew from the Inking Out Loud podcast. Drew McCaffrey, how you doing? Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, I'm, you know, we're doing something today, Drew, that has been reserved for only two authors so far on the show. We've done, what, like 450 episodes, something like that, something ridiculous. And we've only ever done repeats of two things, one being The Lord of the Rings and the other being Elantris, actually. Um, that, that one was a little bit more just because it was like, yeah, we didn't really give it a full episode <laughs> the first time through. So, uh, anyway, so we are coming back to Matthew Stover, you and I, and we did this previously in, it was around episode 350 or so. It was an author shelf episode, uh, that we did with, um, uh, with our old buddy, Scott Lynch. Scott Lynch. Yeah. For some reason, I, I felt like I needed to look over at the Liza Locklamora on my shelf to remember his name, which is stupid. Um, but anyway, Scott Lynch picked this book, uh, Heroes Die, Forrest Reed. We did. It was great. So now we're coming back to it, but we're doing it a little bit different way. I'll tell you all more about that in just a moment. Of course, go to thelegendarium.com. Uh, check us out on Discord. Go to Patreon, uh, which, yeah. I'll save that for later. You should go to Patreon yeah, yeah. and I'll tell you why in just a sec. But Drew, we're coming back to this because even though we read and discussed the first book with Scott Lynch, uh, you said, no, 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 no. <laughs> We've <laughs> got to make our way through the whole series. And here's why. And you read me a review that uh, that actually won a Stabby Award on the R Fantasy subreddit a few years ago yep. for being a review of... I think it was the fourth and final book of the series, but it was also kind of a review of the series generally. You want to yeah, it was, lay the it was groundwork there? Full full review. So um, this guy, Adam Whitehead, um, if people are active online in fantasy communities, you may know him as Worthead. Uh, he has a website called The Wart Zone where he posts all kinds of reviews and things. And he's done a lot of map work. Uh, the Atlas of Ice and Fire is another website that he did. He's worked directly with George R. R. Martin. He's been around. And he has a series of reviews where he does full series, uh, kind of a look back, and it's called Sequence Complete. And this is the sequence complete for the Acts of Cain. And this won an award for a reason. It is a, a brilliantly vivid review of the series. And that's appropriate because this is a brilliantly vivid, weird series. And I'm going to read just a, just a little bit of this review. Uh, Adam Whitehead says, The Acts of Cain Quartet may remain unmatched in the history of fantasy for what the author achieves. Four novels completely different to one another in tone, atmosphere, and prose style, which both work as four parts of a grand whole and also as individual novels. It is the fantasy genre given three shots of premium vodka. It's not quite like anything else ever written in the genre, and I'm not convinced we'll see its like ever again. And he goes on to specifically talk about the fourth and final book, the uh, the goal we're striving for. And the reason that I said, you know, a year ago when we covered the first book, we got to go on. Kane's Law, the fourth book, 
reads like the result of a writing collaboration between R.A. Salvatore and Gene Wolfe, with the results guest edited by Lemmy from Motorhead. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if anybody is going to mention Gene Wolfe positively in a review, it's going to perk Drew's ears up. Uh, he's going to get a yeah. bit of a, a wolfy heart on uh, for whatever they're talking about. So, uh, no, but I, we'll, I, we'll go into more detail as we go through this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved that. You, you read me that little excerpt a while ago. I laughed my head off and, uh, and just based on the first book, it's like, yeah, that's, that's even accurate just for that. It's really kind of, it gets balls to the wall, uh, at yeah. certain points, shall we say, but, um, Drew, you and I, the, the reason I, I like reading somebody's actual review, a review of a mm -hmm. book, is that we don't actually do that, okay? 450 episodes in, people know that about The Legendary, and we're not reviewing per se. We're, yes, we are giving our opinions much like a reviewer does, but, uh, but it, it exists in a little bit different uh, type of sphere, I suppose, these uh, book mm -hmm. club discussion things. So that's what we're going to be doing together but this is going to be an unholy intertwining of our two podcasts. So when I tell people they should uh, subscribe to The Legendarium, what I'm also telling them is they should subscribe to Inking Out Loud. Inking Out Loud. So if, if they're not yet, I know many of our audience have done so. I hope they do so uh, now because you and I are going to kind of flip back and forth between those two feeds. So if you want to hear every episode that we do on the Acts of Cain, uh, will be eight episodes. You'll need to subscribe to both feeds. Unless you are a Patreon supporter of either of our shows, each uh, episode will be available in both uh, Patreon feeds in its entirety. Okay, Correct. so if that's not too confusing, there you go. That's what <laughs> we're doing. And we're gonna flip-flop back and forth. So we're gonna do two episodes on uh, Heroes Die, the first half will be here on the Legendarium. The second half will be over there on Inking Out Loud. And then we'll flip back and forth as we go through the four books. Okay. Now, with all that housekeeping out of the way, Drew, you got me back into it. And it was not a hard lift. Okay. The first time I, I even mentioned on the Scott Lynch episode, I was like, you know, you, you need a Scott Lynch to get me to do what you've been telling me to do for three years or however long it has right. been. Scott Lynch says, read Heroes Die. And I'm like, okay. And Drew's like, what the hell, man? I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> um, it, it did not take that kind of a lift this time. You said, hey, let's get back to Heroes Die. And I went, okay. Uh, yeah. So here we are. How many times have you read this first book? This is my fifth time through. Okay. Fifth time through. This is my second time through. Um, oh, and by the way, I should tell people we are going to the end of day three. Okay, mm -hmm. so this it's this uh, book is separated into different days and think of them like parts. Uh, so we're going to the end of day three and then we won't spoil anything past that. Um, anyway, sorry, I, I forgot to mention that up front. Okay, so you've read it five times. How yeah. many other books exist in that kind of space for you? That I've read five or more times? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, are, I, you don't you don't need to give me a number, a, but give a, me a good, ballpark. Are we talking like five books or like 50 books or, you know, how oh, much of a rereader are you normally? More like 50 books. Um, I'm a very fast reader, so mm. 
I, you know, when I was younger, I kind of always had things like the Wheel of Time and Harry Potter and the Rune Lords on my reread cycle. I reread mm. Dragonlance a lot, Star Wars. Um, nowadays, my reread cycle is more spread out. There's, I usually reread one series a year, maybe two. This year, I'm rereading um, uh, The Divine Cities by Robert Jackson Bennett, although that's only my second time through through that one. But and then, of course, I'm rereading this. Uh, I reread The Black Company a lot, mm. Gene Wolfe, The Gap Cycle, things like that. But so I reread <laughs> a good amount. Uh, but that is more a function of... Um, you read too much? I, yeah, I read too much. That said, <laughs> like, there's a reason why The Acts of Cain has become a regular reread when I only picked it up for the first time less than a decade ago. And mm. I've reread it more over that span than lots of other favorites that I've, you know, like loved historical for a long favorites. Time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to give people some context, Drew, <laughs> you are you are a Jordan Con winner of the trivia contest. So you know yes. more of you like how should I put this? You've forgotten more about the Wheel of Time <laughs> than some of its biggest fans will ever know, right? When was the last time you read the Wheel of Time? 2013 yeah there you go okay so it's been a decade uh, so my my point just being you know you can have your favorite series but then yeah. uh, some other things can sneak in and become favorites of their own on that level and that that's what we're dealing true. with here so for me with this being my second time through i'm i do not exist in the same space as you do with this yet uh and and maybe I won't by the time we get to the end of it. That's I, I'm trying to leave myself open to either possibility. Mm -hmm. um, listeners know I'm a Tolkien guy at heart. I've reread yeah. Tolkien a million times. Uh, you know, childhood favorites like Terry Brooks or um, yeah, Harry Potter, like you said. Yeah, I've reread those a million times. But um, uh, but anyway, we'll see if this kind of works its way into that headspace for me. I will say yeah. that after a year. I still think about this story in a way that I don't think about other uh, stories that we've, uh, most other stories that we've done on the podcast, even other author shelf ones. You know, I get done with some of the heavier stuff like uh, Ursula Le Guin, mm -hmm. uh, Rob, well, yeah, no, I was going to say Robert Heinlein, but that's been so long ago now. But like, I've done two Ursula Le Guin books in the last like six or eight months. And both of them are interesting. They provide great conversation fodder. It's, you know, a lot to think about. But then once I'm done reading it, once I'm done talking about it, I, it's just gone. I, like, it's out of my head. Yeah. Kane did not do that to me. So I've been thinking about this story for a while, and I'm, I'm excited to come back to it. Um, so on that topic, yeah. that's where I think the Gene Wolfe comes in. Gene Wolfe is the same way for me and, and is the same way for a lot of readers, where it... it his stories sit in the back of your head and needle at you and mm. say, Hey, look, there's more here. Come back, revisit it. You're going to find greater depths. Yeah. And uh, like, there's a, a common saying with some of Gene Wolfe's more famous books is, you know, you don't read, for instance, the book of the new sun. You don't read the book of the new sun for the first time until you've read it a second time. And, and the <laughs> uh, acts of Cain isn't white like that level, but it very much does get recontextualized mm. once you finish the series and you're like, oh my gosh, what he was doing here, yeah. I couldn't have even picked up on it, you know, and 
And so it's that sort of thing that just sits with you and, and bubbles. Let me, let me expand on that, uh, expound on that point sure. for just a moment. Um, I'm going to start with an illustration. Sarah, my wife and I are watching The Witcher. It's her first time through it. I kept thinking, you know, as I was going through, especially as I was going through the second season, I was like, oh man, you know, Sarah enjoyed the the um, Wheel of Time series. She has enjoyed, she really enjoyed Game of Thrones. Uh, I was like, hey, you know, I think she might be down for The Witcher. And so it took me a while, but I finally convinced her to watch it. Um, and we were watching through the first season and it was my, I think it was my third time through that first season. Drew, have you seen oh, it by wow. the way? I've only seen season one. Okay, but you've seen season one. Point. My mm. point here is that with season one of The Witcher, and I'm not going to, well, mild spoiler, <laughs> skip ahead 30 sure. seconds. I guess it's a pretty major spoiler. Skip ahead 30 seconds. <laughs> um, the timelines are all jumbled up, and they yes. don't tell you that in the first season of The Witcher. So when you get to the end of it, and they bring all of those pieces together, and the last one snaps into place, it makes the whole picture clear. Um, but it can be frustrating to watch up to then if you're not interested in the little vignettes that they're giving you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I'm watching The Witcher for the third time, my I, I'm not expending any brain power on trying to put together those pieces. I'm just, uh, I, I'm now able to, you know, back up, take that 30,000 foot view and see what they're doing and how they're putting it all together and yeah. kind of the genius behind the writing and, and all that stuff. The Acts of Cain so far, you know, Heroes Die, I should say, is in a very similar boat, like many fantasy and sci-fi books are, where that first time you read it, there's so much of your energy that goes into trying to figure out what the fork is going on, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so for instance, on page 12, we're at the beginning of the book. Uh, it's our kind of introductory uh, scene. Um, you can imagine with a lot of books, they, you know, they start with the some violent scene that sets the table mm -hmm. for the rest of the story. And this one is no different, Ooh, but he's, he's going through, <laughs> he's going through this uh, palace. He's on a, a mission to, uh, to uh, execute the king, et cetera, et cetera. And he slips at one point on page 12 and he says, I upend like Elmer Fudd. And my first time through the book, I saw that and went, wait, what? <laughs> Either there's something else going on or Drew lied to me and Matthew Stover is a terrible <laughs> author, a terrible writer because he's throwing in anachronisms like Elmer Fudd <laughs> into this yeah, story yeah. where somebody's like pulling daggers out of his leathers, you know, and all that sort of thing. And this time, I was able to actually comprehend what was going on in that scene without being distracted by those, yeah. like the, the puzzle pieces. Does that make any sense? Oh, it totally does. Um, I, I, I think in terms of that uh, level of difficulty, this isn't the hardest book to get over that. But it, there is a, a hurdle for sure, because what the Axe of Cain is doing is blending a dystopian sci-fi world and a traditional high fantasy world. Right. And so like, I remember the first time I read it, uh, I didn't necessarily slip up over the Elmer Fudd thing, but the one that really confused me was like, uh, it, it's a, maybe a page or two later when the exit 
button starts blinking in the upper right, <laughs> right. corner. And I was like, wait, <laughs> <Yeah>. what? <laughs> I thought it was talking about like an exit sign above a door, like in an auditorium or something like that. I was yeah. like, what is going on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but of course, once you've read through the book and you know, okay, this is him in the opening scene watching a VR video, immersive video of what he did in the past, recorded and replayed for audiences on Earth. And you're like, oh, okay. So, of course, yeah. him making an Elmer Fudd reference is going to resonate with the audience back on Earth. And like, okay, and this makes sense. Which, yeah, so... <laughs> there's something that he does. Um, and I, I suspect we'll talk more about this when we get to the inking out loud side of things. Cause we'll talk more uh -huh. about the writing, but you, you even on our show, we're not going to skip over the point of view stuff. And I think we talked about this with Scott Lynch we as well. We can't skip over the, you can't skip stuff. over it because you're reading this book. You start, you open the book and it starts in first person. Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, okay. So I'm reading a first person book but then you know some of the first person the, the first person stuff is italicized or it's like kind of set apart and then there's third person he moves into third person and uh but wait a minute but it's third person for the same character and then he moves to other characters yep. and they get third person stuff and then you you get into basically what he does is he switches between first and third person and if you're in first person then you're in uh, you're in somebody's head during a broadcast, mm -hmm. uh, which is a it, it's it's a wildly confusing and inventive and fun way to do it. Yeah, uh, it confusing at first. Once you figure it out, once it clicks, then you're like, yeah, yeah. oh, okay, great. Now I've got my footing. But yeah, it is confusing. And it's at first. so clever how he uses it to demonstrate uh, in an immersive way a visual medium through a textual medium because we have this idea of the soliloquy. Yep. In fact, it's a plot point in the book in, in uh, day three where Holberg is, has his meeting with the board of governors and they're like, you know, no more political commentary from Kane or it's on your head. And he's like, but it's, it's pre-conscious it's his soliloquy. And, and he, he's like his, his talent with the soliloquy and how he uses it to narrate his adventures is a big part of why people love Kane. And, and that's such a meta statement because it is a big part of why I, as a reader, love Kane. He has a, a powerful voice as a character, the way he perceives the world and thinks about the world mm -hmm. and then comments upon the world. Like how many people would slip and fall in a puddle of blood while they're like murdering their way out of a palace <laughs> and compare it to a Looney Tunes cart, you know, like character. It's, it, it, it's special. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Um, and I, like I said, I think we're going to talk more about mm -hmm. point of view stuff and, and writing styles and all that, but let's take this as a good launching point to veer off in a different direction and talk about that soliloquy. So the soliloquy, basically to, to clue people in, if it's been a while since you've read it, if you didn't read it, first of all, shame on you. This is an amazing <laughs> book. I, uh, I, I, I 
really strongly encourage people to check it out yeah. if they're no, okay I, with some violence, basically. I missed the live stream, but I had somebody uh, point me toward it and say that you recently did a ranking of uh, a bunch of the books you've mm. covered recently on The Legendary yeah. and you put this in the highest tier with The Silmarillion. Uh, yes, and I, I rank them within the rankings, and so it mm -hmm. made the same tier, but yeah, it, it okay, it's not at the same level as The Lord of the Rings or The Silmarillion uh, for me, but basically that was like legendary status. This book has reached yeah. legendary status for me, basically even on one read because I can't stop thinking about it. I can't get it out of my head. Yeah. Anyway, no, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to go off in a little bit different direction. Uh, oh, no, I was going to tell people about what the soliloquies are. So if you are, if you exist in this world um, and you are plugged into these feeds or you're watching a, a rerun or something, you can watch them live or you can watch them as a rerun. But either way, you are plugged into the actor's brain uh, very literally, not with wires, but still very literally, where you not only see what they see, but you feel and you think what they feel, what they think, what they smell, what they see, what they touch, whatever, you exist as that person. Now, that being said, and you can correct the record later, I can see the look on your face, that's fine. Um, it's essentially. <laughs> but that being said, there's a, a soliloquy where the actor is kind of trained to think along with what they're doing mm -hmm. um, in a very narrative style. And so that's kind of his in-world explanation for how he gets to write a line like, I upend like Elmer Fudd. Um, because the actor is is trained to think about things narratively like that as they're happening, which is wild. I, I really love that. What an incredibly um, clever narrative <laughs> device. Like, oh, it's great. Just, it's great. Oh. So... Yeah, so the, the distinction I would make there is it's not exactly thoughts that you're getting, even though they call it a thought meter, right. but what they're trained to do with the soliloquy is sub vocalize. Right. So it's sensing like the movement of the muscles in your mouth and throat. Um, like how probably most people listening to this, because this is most people who read, mm. even if you're not aware of it, while you're reading, you are sub vocalizing the words as you read. Your, your and, tongue and your jaw, they move yeah. as you... As and you so go. while yeah. Cade is, like, wandering around on Kana or getting in fights, he's sub-vocalizing the narration. So they can't quite get his thoughts, but they can get... The next best thing. The expression of his thoughts. And this is also how he gets around the restriction of, like, they're conditioned through, like, studio brainwashing. They physically cannot speak the English language on right. Overworld. Or but speak he can about talk Earth to his audience. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's, uh, um, anyway, I, all of this was to get me to where I wanted to go next, <laughs> which was the chapter with his dad. Okay, and oh, the chapter with yes. Colbert. Okay, because I, I know we talked about this on the Scott Lynch episode, um, but I, I wanted to bring it back up because one thing that I sense he is going to get more into either later in this book, if I recall correctly, I think he gets into it a little bit later in this book, but especially later in the series is kind of the, the politics of this book. We mm. talked about this just a very little bit with Scott Lynch, uh, really just kind of mentioning it, but breezing past it a little bit. But Kane himself is something of a 
a mild libertarian. Uh, he, he's not now, let me, let me back into this point mm -hmm. a little bit. I, I want to make that statement. Now let me tell you what I'm talking about. He doesn't actually give a crap. <laughs> he doesn't really care. However, there's the chapter with his father. His father had a, uh, has a degenerative brain condition. He's losing his memory. He's losing his control over reality. It's been this way for a long time, ever since Cain was a kid. And so, you know, he used to beat Cain when he was a kid. Uh, but, you know, it, it was some kind of disease that was causing him to he, he was out lose his, his... Yeah, he's yeah. out of his mind. He's losing his temper or whatever. Still, you know, when you're 10 years old, it doesn't matter as much why yeah. these things happen. What matters is that they do happen. And so it affects him and whatnot. And he, so he... As he visits his father, this is my favorite chapter so far, as I've mentioned to you before. This is my favorite chapter in the first half of the book because it's so poignant uh, and it's so nuanced, his relationship with his father, because he does still go and visit him in this, for lack of a better word, prison, kind of a mm -hmm. mental institution slash prison. Um, he does still go visit him when he feels like he needs some grounding. He needs to remember who he is and where he came from and, and what he's doing with this man that he was terrified of and that in a way he hates. But, you know, he's also his father. So there's that that nuance that I really love. But the reason I talk about the politics of it is the reason that his father is in prison in the first place and the reason that he's been downcast, so to speak, he's been removed from his upper caste position and moved into the lower caste is because of his political thoughts, his kind of libertarian thoughts. He references, uh, it, throughout the book, he's constantly referencing referencing uh, texts from the early part of the 20th century, the mid part of the 20th century. The Enlightenment. Um, these kind of, yeah, the Enlightenment texts, stuff that, um, you know, that today we would think of as libertarian or classic liberal or something like that. Yep. Um, so that's his father. He's, he's always preaching about that stuff. And so, and because of his brain condition, they couldn't ever shut him up. Uh, and so he gets put in prison. Now, Cain, like I said, doesn't really care about that stuff. However, uh, and I call him Cain. I know in the real world, it's Harry Michelson, whatever. It's Cain. Okay, Cain. Yeah, dude, just calm down, Drew. No, <laughs> I haven't no, even is, gotten to the second book. This is good. Part. This is so good. Like, <laughs> this is what I'm here for. So, Cain doesn't really care that much. However, it's amazing to me when you stop and think about how, aside from the ridiculous sci-fi fantasy setting and, and whatnot, how real this book feels. And it's in part because of chapters like this. Uh, and then you move on. So you see his relationship with his father. Then you move forward several chapters and we have the one that you're talking about where he's sub vocalizing. He's, he's having, I, I think he's actually, uh, to, he's quoting somebody to another character. He's like in the middle of a fight and he says something like, um, uh, like if, if people aren't allowed to, uh, if a peaceful revolution is not allowed, then you'll have a violent revolution. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the line is, is something along the lines of like, if you make peaceful revolution impossible, there you, you make violent revolution inevitable. There you go. Yes. And I can't remember who it came from, but it's a real quote. Was it Shaw? Real I think uh, yeah. George Shaw. Bernard Shaw. Yeah. That could be it anyway. Um, and I, the reason I say it makes it feel, makes the story feel real is because Stover 
I assume on purpose here, has remembered that just because you don't consciously adhere to what your parents taught you doesn't mean it had no influence. And he he knew that he knew that quote. And he more importantly felt that it was appropriate in whatever situation he was in um, and and therefore brought it to the surface. It wasn't like um, it wasn't a dashed off thing. It was uh, it was very appropriate to the circumstances. And so I'm very curious. First of all, I, like I said, it, it makes the story feel real. It makes me feel very connected to Kane. Uh, not because I believe everything that he believes, but because I believe that he is a person who can believe these things. There's a sentence for you. Um, <laughs> but also, it does make me very curious about what's going to happen as the book goes on, or as the books go on, if we're going to get more into this kind of philosophy where we have uh, an authoritarian uh, system of government that's cast, it's a caste system, um, it's driven by a shadowy cabal. That's something that we should probably get back to at some point. But um, but I'm going to be keeping my eye on the politics. All right. Now I've talked yeah. for 10 minutes. You go. Well, so I, I, obviously I'm, I can't spoil things. I'm not going to talk <laughs> right. about what comes next. But, uh, but I do think this is an interesting point to bring up, not only in like the layers of the conversation and the relationship between Hari or Kane and, and his father, Duncan, but also what it shows us in a very subtle way about Hari's relationship with Shauna, because a lot of this book is driven by his relationship with his estranged wife. Uh, they're separated. Mm, uh, we yeah. get the, the distinct impression. Hari still loves her. She maybe not so much. And everything that has been presented to us in the first three days of the book is a, actually a pretty two-dimensional view of their marriage it is like they had this steamy romance they were <laughs> two high profile actors and the world was captivated by them and they finally got married and they were the darlings but then in their private life they didn't get along because Kane is this violent man who really only finds satisfaction in violence playing Kane not not being Hari on earth. Right. Whereas Shauna is a much more empathetic person. She's an idealist, you know, she working for Liberty and, and what's the name of her? Uh, well, there's palace, palace Rill, Rill. but, but yeah. she comes up with a, uh, Oh, uh, Simon Jester, right? So Simon Jester is the moon yeah, is a harsh character. Yeah. And this is what it actually reveals about their relationship. He never explicitly states this, but it shows that while they may have, initially had this animal magnetism and the, you know, they're both very good looking people and actors and <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, all of that. But there was an intellectual attraction as well. The, the very fact that despite Hari's resentment toward his father, despite the way he sees his status in life as the fault of his father and the knowledge of how dangerous like this libertarian mindset is, Hari still shared these forbidden texts with Shanna. She knows about Robert Heinlein and the moon is a harsh mistress because of Hari. And she in turn uses that as her symbol. She takes the moniker of Simon Jester, the moon AI from that classic sci-fi book who's rebelling against earth. 
and the logo, the the horned mm. smiley face as her her sigil. And it shows you that while they, uh, you know, the story tells us it started hot and it grew cold. And that's why they separated. There's much more to their relationship than that. And that's why on a close reading, on a critical reading of this, you can see this isn't just like, oh, the author is setting this up because that's what the author wants to set up. Like, it's not just some forced plot, forced He didn't just need a, a marriage gone bad. Exactly. And he gives a spark of hope because, um, you know, the the driving force for, for Hari, for Kane in the book is, you know, what happened in, in like, chapter one? Mark Vila telling him, look, dude, you got to get back together with your wife. Mm, yeah, for the for the sake of the storyline, the fans need it. Yeah, the fans need it, but Hari also needs it. And he, as much as he tries to convince himself this is never going to happen, he can't give it up. And he beats himself up over it. He abuses himself. We get an early scene of self-abuse when he's uh, sparring with the dummy in, in the Abbey. Mm. And and he's talking about how, like, even the pain that he's inflicting on himself by going way overboard in this training, this doesn't help anything. Yeah. And so we see through these scenes, through these chapters, extra layers of subtext. It's it, it's really brilliant character writing for our main character, for the characters around him. And it's a huge part of why I love it so much is that Hari Michelson's relationships as much as there's all the bombast and the violence and the insane ideas, it's his relationships that drive the story. Well said, well said. And shall we move on from that then? Cause we're going to be coming back to Hari or Kane and palace Rill uh, as the story goes on. So we, there's plenty okay. more to say there and we've got time. Okay. So um, I want to ask you, about world building uh and how so you are as yet your major works haven't been published yet i Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say you're an unpublished writer because you are published um but your your novels haven't been picked up yet but you've written several so you're you know several steps ahead of me and (laughs) (laughs) i want to talk about world building maybe what you have learned from uh you know just this this first half of the book okay we're kind of keeping it here uh and how it is done Uh, let me as you think about that let me just say there are there's there's bad world building there's good world building and there's great world building and one of the markers this isn't the end all be all but one of the markers of great world building to me is when an author can give you tidbits, slip in little references to something that ends up having no effect on the story. Uh, that that isn't. It's not a red herring, but it's not. Uh, it's not something that's going to be, um, you know, the, like a mystery novel. The key that comes in and unlocks the secret of the mystery later. But there are mm-hmm. just little pieces of flavor as you go on and so you know i might think of something like the the troll guards at the uh the elvish pleasure den um 
something yeah. like that, where, you know, you, you have these characters and he tells you in detail kind of what they look like, how they act, how they talk, the way they fight, all this stuff. And then uh, you, you never really see him again, whatever. They were just trolls. He could have put anything in there, but he decided to populate his world with more magical creatures and, you know, stuff like that I think is really great. Um, it's the mark of a great piece of world building is when you can do that. And I don't mind. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like I get to the yeah. end of the book and I'm like, why did you waste all your time with describing this or that or the other? In this case, I, you know, I come to the end of it and I'm like, oh, great. I loved all that flavor. Thanks for the great dish. I don't know. Yeah. How does, how does that all work for you? And how does, how has this influenced your writing? So what I think it comes down to is actually, uh, there was one thing you said in that one little, little details, just a couple words that I disagreed with. And it was when you said it doesn't have any effect on the story. Well, okay, and you know what I mean? What, what like, I'm, I'm not like trying to be nitpicky. The storyline. I'm it, yes. Uh, and so what it is, is that this is the distinction in my opinion of what makes it annoying or like, like, why did we waste all time on that versus that added flavor to the dish? Hmm. And it is that even if it doesn't directly affect the story or forward the plot or set up some long-term foreshadowing, whatever, what it does is develop ancillary parts of it. And in this case, it's Kirindal. It's that we are in a place called Alien Town and that she has gone to great effort to uh, consolidate the non-human races in the city. And so she's using all of them. We get the descriptions of like, she has these little lookout teams and they all include right. either elves who can mind meld and telepathically speak to each other or tree toppers, which are pixies and they can move really fast for communication. And she has dwarves who are called stone benders in this world or, and, and they can like, trap somebody by literally like making the stones wrap around their feet, that kind of thing. And so we get this idea of her as a formidable foe. It's building Kirindal up instead of her just being some elf girl who owns a brothel and casino. It's showing, wow, she has access to powerful, diverse forces. And in turn, it shows us the competence of our hero. So yeah. that when he comes into, you know, certain situations, we have a gauge of like, how are we supposed to feel about this? He's coming up against like some street thugs like he does. Like, well, duh, he's going to whoop up on these dudes. Okay, well, the next time around, he's coming up against like trolls and magical beings and stuff. And you're like, oh, oh boy. Okay, is this going to be the thing that he can't handle because he's just a dude? And then we see, wow, that's why he's known as one of the most feared fighters on Overworld. Yeah. It, it adds layers of just ancillary context, both for the main character and for side characters. And in that way, like that world building is so efficient. In one, two, three page segment, we get context for Kane, we get context for Bairn, we get context for Kirindal, we get context for the denizens of Ankana, like we get context for the the politics of interracial relations in in this world. Like it is so effective. <laughs> and 
I mean, I, I would love to be able to write that deftly. I don't think I ever have, uh, <laughs> but that's why we work at it. That's why we practice. And, and I, I, so yes, a thousand times. Yes. To everything <laughs> you said, I do want to just make clear that my point wasn't that this scene is unnecessary. <laughs> It's that he spends so much time on little details, like the freaking tusks of the trolls, you know? Um, Anyway. No, I, uh, like I said, a thousand times yes to everything you said. He's, uh, you know, he's among the best for this reason. Well, but so you bring up the idea of world building. And I think in the popular consciousness, the idea of world building has changed a lot since Mm. the days of, Matthew Stover writing The Acts of Cain, largely driven by an author you and I both enjoy greatly, Brandon Sanderson. Yep. Um, the idea of hard magic systems, the idea of, you know, interconnected universes. If, you know, if, if you come into The Acts of Cain expecting the sort of granular detail almost like D stat sheet-esque stuff <laughs> that brandon sanderson writes you're not yeah. going to find that here and i don't think that's a bad thing no. i don't think it's necessarily a good thing i think there are some authors who write more in the style of stover who don't carry it off as well um there's a reason i love brandon sanderson you know like it, there he he has built a vivid engaging world that I can lose myself in and specifically lose myself in trying to figure out how it works. Mm. Uh, there is a part of my head that, you know, I have discovered since I only started playing D and D less than a year ago, turns out I really like playing D and D, but as a, as a storyteller, you brought this up w- with my writing. I don't take the same lessons from Brandon Sanderson's world building and try to apply it to what I'm trying to do. I prefer more of Matthew Stover's approach personally. Um, I mean, you've read one of my books mm-hmm. and you know that I'm not giving like detailed breakdowns of how different magics like counteract each other and, and like leave holes for mysteries and things like that in, in the network of the world building. Mine is much more like, all right, what are the broad forces moving through the story? It's the characters, it's the politics, it's the religions, it's, you know, and, and I see the world building as more of a vehicle for that, a a foundation for that. Whereas for Brandon Sanderson, the world building, the magic is central to the story. That that is the story in, in many ways. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Drew, what do you want to talk about from the first three days of Heroes Die? We've got, uh, we we can go for another 10 minutes or so, but I want to make sure you get your say before we kick it over to your show. I want to talk about scene building. I think you just did (laughs) with the scene in Alien Town. So that's, that's a really good example of it. But I want to talk about the idea of conflict. Um, and this is where, uh, you know, I think a lot of writers struggle. You're filling out your story. You're like, okay, I need to move the characters from here to here. How do I fill that space? And you end up with a lot of just scenes, filler scenes. The way Stover makes everything so engaging, and he even calls it out. We're like, 
multiple characters, including Kane, remark on the fact that, like, wow, he hasn't killed anybody yet. What is going on? <laughs> but even if he's not in a life or death situation or he's not killing people, doesn't mean there isn't conflict in every scene. I think for the first, you know, three days of the book, the best written scene is actually Kane talking to Kirindal in her room. Oh, interesting. From Kirindal's perspective. Right. This is maybe the most thoroughly intimidating we see our main character. What? You know? Let, like, let me just stop you there. Because as a, well, as an earlier reader than you, I, I was about to say first time, but I guess this is my second time. But, uh, <laughs> but on my second time through, what this does by putting it in Kirindal's perspective is it tells you how everybody sees Kane. You can get things from Kane's perspective. Um, and he, you know, he has his own thoughts about his role as like a great actor or something. Um, this feared assassin and all that stuff. Uh, and then you get some flavor from like his, uh, his corporate superiors. Who, but they yep. see him as a tool. How can they capitalize on this? How can they continue to build the 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 legend of Cain and all that stuff? And then you get somebody who actually exists in the world where he operates as Cain, who you know has who knows all the legends about his exploits and whatnot, and then has him there in the room with her right then. And she, you know, this this kind of immortal fairy creature is scared. Poopless, shall we say? Yeah. I was going to use a different, yeah. more colorful term, but okay. I love this scene for that reason. Now, go on. No, that's exactly it. We we start the scene with Kirindal in her element, where she is in utter control, absolute control of the situation. She's, you know, she's got such a mastery of magic, something beyond a normal human that she can mess with the people in her, you know, in her casino. Mm. Uh, she, we see all of these magical and physical forces at her control. Uh, and, and we get time with her before this. So we get to understand, wow, she's a formidable opponent. And then she walks in. And like you said, she, her bowels turn to ice. <laughs> <laughs> She has just, she, she loses it. She's like, wow, this guy. And on top of that, it adds another layer because from her perspective, as somebody so in tune with the magical forces of the world, we get another layer added to the idea of the shell. And this is where, you know, some world building comes in. We've seen the shell come in. Everybody has a shell and magic users can see it. It's, it's demonstrated through colors and certain colors you know, uh, uh, correspond to emotions and yeah. reactions and things. If you're angry, a magic if you're a coward. See, like, you're... Yeah. Uh, they can see when you're angry, when you're afraid, when you're going to attack, whatever. And she looks at Kane in a dark room. She can't see him. And she's like, well, I should see his shell. But I can't see his shell. And she's like, what? Like, the, holy crap. And then he lights a candle and she realizes I've been seeing his shell the whole time. It's pure black. You cannot read it. It's like, oh, dang. <laughs> it, oh, just not somebody just, to be trifled with, obviously. No, no. 
And I love the the moment when Tup, the the pixie, the treetopper, her her lover, tries to attack Kane, and there is just zero hesitation. She remarks that even looking at his shell, there was no change in it. He just moves. There's no hesitation, no no thought involved. It's just pure reaction. Boom! Knife through the wing, pinned to the wall. Yeah. So like, in in real world terms, this would be like if um, if you've ever watched boxing or even a boxing movie probably where they talk about telegraphing your punches um yeah. that's what they're talking about where you know a lot of people they'll, you know, they'll put your dukes up they'll put their dukes up and then before they punch they'll have a little wind up and then mm-hmm. you know throw the punch it's, it's called telegraphing your punches and kane is so deadly he's so efficient whatever he telegraphs nothing he just moves yeah uh, and yeah, it's pretty and cool f- from my perspective as a as an athlete, it's what a lot of people call flow state, where mm. you and there is actual like scientific backing oh, yeah. on this, uh, where you get into this mindset during a high pressure game. It's not restricted to athletics, but it's most oh, no. often. This happens with writing all yeah. the time for me. So yeah, it's you bypass your prefrontal cortex and you just act. And uh, in fact, there's this is going to show how much of nerds we are. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a great ESPN sports science video on YouTube about this with a StarCraft II player named Polt. Yeah. Uh, and how he, like, you know, they hooked him up to all the brain sensors and, and things and, and showed that when he was in a high-pressure situation, he just bypasses the prefrontal cortex and he just acts. He doesn't have to stop and think. And when I think about myself playing hockey, the best plays I've ever made, it's those situations. A lot of people call it as like blacking out. They're like, I, I don't know. A, a reporter asks, you know, a player after a game about some clutch goal they scored. And they're like, I don't know. I blacked out. And that's exactly <laughs> what Kane is doing here. Yeah. It's just. It's a great scene. And he builds it at like. I don't, I don't know. He, first of all, puts it in Kirindal's perspective. Yeah. But then also, I don't know, what else? I, I can think of one or two other things, but I kind of want to actually hear your thoughts uh, on this one as far as building the scene. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you one, but I, I do want to hear your other thoughts on how he builds this scene and makes it so effective. He puts it in Kieran Dahl's perspective, and then he also gives her a little bit of time with the pixie so that w- you understand their relationship, how close they are, uh, so that when he does flick that knife and pin the pixie to the wall by her wing, um, you you feel that. not You not only feel the terror of how good this guy is <laughs> but you also feel the terror emotionally from Kirindal. this character who we haven't met before he hasn't spent chapters and chapters building her up and her relationship and whatnot but he will spend a, a few paragraphs telling you mm-hmm. about that relationship so that when he flicks that knife you you feel it it's a gut punch um as well as anything else right what else is he doing in that scene so a big part of it, I think, is the dialogue. It's very staccato, short, to the point. Um, 
you know, I, I brought this up on a live stream when I was out there in Utah, this idea of attacking and deflecting and defending, mm. um, which is really just a microcosm of conflict within scenes. The way you make a scene not be filler is by making it have important conflict. And one of the ways you can express that conflict is through your dialogue. And if you go back and you you just flip through the, the pages of this, the actual dialogue is often just terse, short, one, two, three words, you know. What is it, though? Are the rats coming against us? The serpents? Worse. This is when she's talking to her uh, right. her people. Worse. I think it's Kane. Now move. Everything is short to the point. And then she goes up into the room. And she she's scared and she's like, wait a second, something's off. And she goes, Zach, he's out. That's all Kane says. He's out. You know, and, and we have these, these give and takes. We go on a little bit. Uh, there was one particular bit that I, that I highlighted here. So yeah, he goes, sit down. She sat on your hands. She tucked her hands beneath her thighs. If you're not here for me, what do you want? And then he doesn't reply. And we have an extended, like, two pages of, uh, almost, of narration describing him. And it ends with uh, her comparing Baron and Cain. She says, there was the difference in a nutshell. Baron was a wildcat. Cain was a sword. And then it goes back to dialogue, finally. And he goes, you done? <laughs> almost like he's talking to the narrator <laughs> yeah like he knows that she is mentally sizing him, him up yeah yeah it's it's so good and then we go into the the conversation you know and, and it's a lot of like cutting them off and this is where it shows um uh one of the ways he shows why kane is terrifying right we set up kirandal like i said earlier in the scene as this woman in charge of her environment and the way you demonstrate through dialogue when a character has lost control or is is in control, it's how they dominate the conversation. And in this, she keeps trying to talk and he cuts her off constantly. If you're being interrupted, talking, it's a good way to establish dominance, Drew. You're not in control of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, but like, the way Stover has an understanding of dialogue and speech and like, look, there's a way to write good dialogue and a way to write bad dialogue while you're using good dialogue writing techniques. You still need to make the dialogue feel natural. You need to make it feel like the characters. You need to make it feel like the setting. You know, if you're having a character talk in some elevated language when they're, you know, in the back room at a brothel, like that's going to feel weird. Right. And, and so he leans into the emotion. He leans into the anxiety of the scene and, and he shows that through like this just rushed, almost breathless dialogue. So with, on that note, this is something that uh, that can and should be done really well. Uh, one of my favorite examples of it is actually Pippin in The Lord of the Rings, uh, where Pippin speaks in his 
conversational style through the entire story. Doesn't matter who he's with. He's with the other hobbits. He's with Strider. He's with Gandalf, whatever. He just talks the way that he wants to talk until he gets to Denethor. And he's super intimidated. He's really scared. He's separated from all of his friends. He's out of his context, out of his element. And so his speech changes to mirror that of Denethor because he's trying to impress him, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to get into the whole scene, but he, he elevates his language in that one situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he does go back once he's away from Denethor and once he's with the other hobbits, especially like he, oh, he breathes a sigh of relief and can finally talk normally again, even with like the other people of Minas Tirith. So, so this is something that, um, that I've been looking at keeping track of for a while, you know, the way these characters talk, uh, in different contexts and Kane is the same way where he never becomes a different person. Uh, in the same way that Pippin is still the same scared little hobbit, um, he's just a scared little hobbit in a different context. <laughs> Kane, when he's Hari Michelson, when when he's uh, in the real world, when he's himself, he's still, he's not a man of many words. He's not very verbose, no. but he will have a conversation with someone. He does try to leave a message on Shauna's phone. He does have his conversations with Kohlberg. He has, you know, whatever. He'll have actual conversations. Once he gets into Overworld, um, and especially like in that scene with um, with Kirindal, or once he's in the the monastery and he's having his confrontation with the uh, the head of the monastery, Creel. Those yeah. those sentences, as you say, become extremely crisp. In part because it's it's a part that he was trained to play uh, mm-hmm. that has become a part of himself, right? But it's um, it, it's going from okay, I'm going from Harry Michelson into Kane mode. I'm going to scare the bejeebers out of these people by leaving them guessing at what uh, what I'm not saying, right? So he, get, he yeah. gets really clipped, really terse. Um, it's a it's and- a great piece of dialogue. And the next layer of it is this is how Kane interacts when he's in control. And then when you see how he talks mm. to Milecoff, when he is scared, when he's no longer in control, Kane becomes more verbose. He goes on at length when he's, you know, behind the, the Judas gate next to the throne. Yeah. And he's talking to uh to Milecoff. He goes on at length. He's almost babbling at certain points. And Milecoff is like chill you know like, you know what this it. means drew you know and what is that it, it, everybody's gonna see right through us that we're just too <laughs> terribly scared we're, we are horrified terrified children in front of microphones who can't shut up uh, <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> all right on that note drew i think it's time for us to wrap this up there's a lot more to say about heroes die mm-hmm. luckily we have another episode left to go uh, we'll talk about the second half, some of the events that happened. We didn't really talk much about the events of the book, um, only a, a very little bit. Uh, we, we'll have more to say about that in the next episode, which will air on the Inking Out Loud feed. So make sure you are subscribed to that, as well as this one. If you're not, this is one that I don't often hit very hard, but if you've gotten to the end of this episode and you are a fan of either or both shows, uh, please, Go to Patreon. 
Uh, in our case, it's patreon.com slash legendarium. I think in your case, it's slash inking out loud. That is correct. And uh, consider throwing a dollar in the tip jar. Um, I, I haven't been emphasizing this a lot lately. And, uh, you know, things atrophy after a while. And I do want to pick that support back up uh, to make sure that the show stays worthwhile. You listeners have a lot to do with that. Um, and mm-hmm. so make sure that you support one or both of our shows if you enjoy them. Um, it's real. It's uh, it's cheap. Uh, you know, you, there's that old yes. Drew. What's the uh, the cliche of um, it for for less than a cup of coffee every month? Oh. You can uh, support. But at the same time, like it's a cliche for a reason. <laughs> You know, it's it's not much. A dollar in the tip jar per month or per episode in our case uh, is much, much appreciated. And it does mm-hmm. make what we do worthwhile. So if you enjoy it, uh, make sure that you help us out with that. Yeah. Uh, and then you'll get all of these episodes in one place. Uh, well, in two places, I guess, really. Yeah. And, and on our end of things, you also get access to a bunch of original fiction and bonus episodes. So there you go. Yeah. They do better than we do. (laughs) uh, No, I was going to, I was actually going to tell people, yeah, you go sign up for the inking out loud Patreon and you get Drew's fiction. Uh, So we've been talking a little bit about it and people can actually get a sample of it there. So Drew, I will see you for the next episode where we talk about the second half of heroes die. And then we will go on with the acts of Cain, just like you always wanted. Uh, Can't wait. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later.